Amazing story. That town hears the word of the Lord and everything changes. Which made me wonder as I studied this week, have I ever heard the word of the Lord? Like that? With that kind of effect? It's a dramatic, it's a simple story that we're going to look at in chapter 3. But it's an amazing story and it conveys to us a simple truth but an amazing truth which I will make clear to you once we get through the chapter and I'll tell you here's what we've seen here's the main point here's that simple but amazing truth but I do want to say this just before we jump in in a book loaded with satire making a point by ridicule and humor this is a pretty straightforward chapter there are still surprises there are outsized elements in this chapter but what you see is generally what you get in chapter 3 Jonah rebukes Nineveh and they all repent let's take a look at it Starting in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you've been with us, this opening to the chapter ought to sound familiar. Look back at chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Exact same words, a little change here. For their evil has come up before me. Other than a couple phrases, chapter 1 and chapter 3 open exactly the same way. In fact, the whole chapters are structured similarly. They're exactly parallel. First, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Second, Jonah responds. Different ways in these two chapters, but Jonah responds. Third, Jonah's presence brings a crisis upon the pagans that he meets. Fourth, the pagans repent. Fifth, God relents. Exact same thing happens in chapter one as in chapter two. Details are different. Broad contours are the same. Except for how Jonah responds. Now, in case you've never heard the story of Jonah and the great fish, I don't know if there's any of you like that here this morning, but let me tell you real quickly what happened in chapter 1 so that I catch you up. Jonah gets that word from the Lord and he disobeys and runs and ends up where? If you said Jesus, points for going with the odds because we're in church and most questions are answered with Jesus, but this is one time that that's not the right answer to that question. He ends up in a great fish. Three days he spends in there. Chapter 2 tells us he spent at least part of that time praying. God heard him, directed the fish to hit emergency eject, and Jonah found himself back on land. I do want to say some of you have had some bad illness over the last few months. But I guarantee you, none of you had the flu like Jonah flu. You've never seen projectile vomiting like this passage here. That parallel wording in verses 1 and 2, Jonah's call, exactly the same in chapters 1 and 3, that parallel wording shows God is giving Jonah a second chance. He hasn't abandoned his prophet. He hasn't given up on this mission to Nineveh. The God who has called Jonah actually forgives and truly forgets. There's no sarcasm, right? You think you can get it right this time? 
There's no manipulation. You don't even want to know what's going to happen if you don't obey me this time. You thought a fish's belly was bad. There's none of that. God gives Jonah a full reset as though what happened last time didn't happen at all. Because that's what forgiveness is, isn't it? It's just a fresh start, a reboot. It restores what was lost and acts like it never happened. And then the whole of chapter 3 is set up parallel to chapter 1. Why? Because it's demonstrating that this is the way God is all the time with everyone. He doesn't offer this reset or this relenting or this forgiveness just to his chosen people like a prophet Jonah. Or for some reason, he set his affection on Nineveh, but those pagan sailors, no hope for... No, this is the way he is all the time. He's patient, kind, and forgiving to anyone who will repent. Aren't you glad he's that way? Aren't you glad he's that way? I'm so glad. And not just because I need that kind of God to govern my life. Our world needs that kind of God. Because forgiveness is about the hardest thing to find in our culture today, isn't it? So God in his unchanging goodness gives Jonah a second chance and what does he do with it? Verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We're not told a word about Jonah's journey. How long did he ride a bus or did he walk? The story jumps right to Nineveh. Second part of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, we need to stop right here, and I need to explain a couple things, because you may have a conversation with a coworker or neighbor this week, and it might come up that you went to church, and they might ask what you heard, and you might talk about Jonah, and they might have read about Jonah and have some questions for you. There's zero archaeological evidence that Nineveh was that big. In fact, the evidence is all to the contrary that the city of Nineveh covered about 1,900 acres and it had a, a wall that went around it that was about seven and a half miles to get all the way around. So what does this phrase mean? Well, the ESV actually adds that little phrase in breadth at the end. Literally, the text just says, the city of Nineveh was a trip of three days, which is kind of ambiguous as to what exactly that means. It might have been three days around. I'm just giving you options for what the grammar allows. Did it take three days to hit all the high points? Like some people say, hey, if you come to Denver, it's about a four-day city. You can do this, 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 and that. Maybe it's that. The, the grammar would allow that. There are some scholars who think that because this was an ancient city and ancient practices of hospitality would have been uh, in, 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 uh, enacted when a, when a visitor came, an outsider came to town, Maybe it was a three-day visit to transact business. Your first day you showed up, you went through the welcoming protocols. Your second day you conducted business. The third day was the send-off. We just don't know precisely what is meant. I'll tell you what I think it means. I think the narrator is actually referring to what we would call the greater Nineveh metro. Because there is archaeological evidence of a number of cities, a number of little, we might call them suburbs, around Nineveh. And that covers a dramatic geographic region. And in fact, in fact, the Bible seems to have already referred to Nineveh this way. Let me just give you a quick cross-reference. This is all like apologetic material to talk to people about what the Bible means by what it says. 
Genesis 10, verses 11 and 12, we're reading the account of Nimrod, the mighty hunter who built the city of Nineveh. And Moses writes, from the land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, rehoboth Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Now, it could be referring to Kala, it could be referring to Rezin, it could be referring to Nineveh, or the Nineveh metro, all those cities. I think it's that. I think it's referring to that big area, with, and that would have taken three days. But whatever the case, it's not necessary that it took three days to walk across Nineveh and we have this massive city in that kind of breadth. It's not the exclusive meaning of that phrase. There's another phrase in verse 3 that demands some attention as well. An exceedingly great city. That's the one that should interest us as Christians. And if you look in the margin, I don't know if you're reading the ESV or the NIV, there's a footnote there in most modern translations, and the adverb exceedingly actually is in Hebrew, get this, in Hebrew it's the word Elohim with a preposition on it, to Elohim. And so sometimes people, that, that's, the, that's the plural for God. Sometimes we take it as the name of God, but in Hebrew, him, that ending makes it plural. El, God, Elohim, God's, plural. And so sometimes people take that to mean it was a God-sized city. But I think we should just take it literally. It was a great city to God. That's what this book is about. Right? That God cared about this city. That's what made it great. That's why he emphasizes the size of this thing. That in one way or another, it took three days to do this city justice. You couldn't just blink as you went through. Because it mattered to God. Well, that's why God sent Jonah. And while we've been talking about all this other stuff, Jonah reached Nineveh. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There it is. One sentence. The point here is urgency. Jonah made it only one day into this three-day city. Whatever that meant, he only made it one day in and he unloaded his message. And once he started, he didn't beat around the bush. One line, eight words in English, even fewer in Hebrew. I don't know what you think about that sermon. Some people think it's a bad sermon. There's no mention of their sins. There's no mention of hope in God. There's no call to repent. I mean, look at it. 40 days, Nineveh's toast. I'm not convinced that it's a bad sermon. Verse 2 says God gave him his message. In fact, it's a unique addition from chapter 1. That wasn't part of the call to Jonah in chapter 1. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. And then in verse 3, the narrator goes out of his way to tell us Jonah was acting according to the word of the Lord. I think his sermon's great. And I'll bet you, even if you wish the content of the sermon were different, I'll bet you love that sermon too. You're like, one sentence? Sweet. Take some notes, preacher. Part of why I think Jonah's delivering God's message is there's a provocative double meaning in that verb overthrown. That verb can signify destroyed, it's the verb that's used in Genesis 19 when Sodom and Gomorrah are overthrown in the sense of being destroyed. 
But it's the same verb that's used in 1 Samuel chapter 10 when it says Saul, the spirit fell on Saul and he was changed. He was transformed. Same verb, used two different places. Either way, here's the interesting thing. Either way, Jonah's message is going to come true. If nothing changes, Nineveh will be overthrown and destroyed. But there's a chance that 40 days passes and Nineveh is totally transformed. That's why I think Jonah's preaching a good message. So the question now is, which is it going to be? He's preached. What are they going to do? Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Just imagine. I know it's a familiar story, but just imagine the scene. Picture downtown Denver if you want. The citizens are bustling around doing the things busy people do when this prophet shows up and drops his one sentence sermon. And suddenly, all those things that seemed so important a moment ago, items on the to-do list, appointments, tasks, romantic conversations, business deals, all of that disappears in their minds and the whole population turns its attention to the sky, which is where they think God lives. Even though the real God actually lives right here. Nobody eats. It's a national day of mourning. As one, the whole town falls to its knees. Why? Look again at verse 5. First sentence. The people of Nineveh believed God. In other words, they let the word of the living God define reality for them. That's hard to do. To just believe what you hear from Him. But friends, belief is the linchpin to everything we do. What we believe dictates what we do. See, our need is never to bring our actions in line with our beliefs. We always live in line with our beliefs. The easiest way to tell what you believe is to take a look at what you really do. I mean, honestly, think of any example you want. The anniversary of Roe v. Wade is usually commemorated in Christian gatherings somewhere right around now. Walks for life are happening right around now. There's a family who might profess to be pro-life, but when the girl or, or, or when, 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 the, when the wife or, or fiance or daughter gets pregnant and then they suddenly realize this is going to interfere with their financial plans and dreams and their career aspirations and hopes, they decide that instead they'll have an abortion and keep this thing quiet. Do they really believe that the right of that baby to live is sacrosanct? No. They just demonstrated that they believe their financial well-being is more important than the life of that baby. We always live what we believe, friends. Our need is not to get in line with our beliefs. Our need is to believe what we really say we believe. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, you're not off the hook for this. I saw a bumper sticker a while back that said, the less you know, the more you believe as though there are people who have figured things out on the basis of facts and perhaps you know, scientific discovery and empiricism or just rational thought 
And, 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 and they, they can live their life on the basis of facts that they know. And then there are the ignorant people in the world who just assume things on the basis of blind belief. That's not actually the divide. The divide is between what you choose to believe. Someone might say, well, I believe life on the basis of science. Oh, do you? Where did you get that belief? Did you find it under a slide? Did you find it on a slide, under a microscope, in a lab? Did science tell you to trust science? No. I mean, we're kind of in the deep end of the pool philosophically. It's called the regress problem in philosophical thought. Ultimately, all of us have to rest our most fundamental beliefs about the universe, and especially truth, on blind faith. So don't think if you're a Christian, oh man, when Josh talks about beliefs, that's the thing about Christianity that is so hard because you just have to believe stuff. Well, so do people that don't believe in Jesus. They just don't usually admit it. And we do. I'm not saying we're better than them. I'm just saying our faith system forces us to live with both eyes open. And so if you're not a Christian, open up your eyes for a minute and go, actually, I have to believe stuff too. Socrates said, the, what is, he, what, what is it? Something like the surest sign of knowledge or, 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 the, or the beginning of wisdom is to admit that you don't have any wisdom. The surest sign of knowledge is that you know nothing. That's how it was. So here we are all together recognizing that we have to base our whole approach to life on something we believe. Well, in Nineveh, they heard the word of the Lord and they banked it all on that. And I want to tell you, best choice you could ever make. This could be the climax of the story, right? Jonah called out against the city, creating a crisis. The people are thrown into tension, so there's some rising action. They repent. We're at the turning point. This is going to resolve now. It's going to resolve into a tragedy. God might still judge them. Or a comedy. It'd be a happy ending. All stories resolve into good endings or bad endings. Which is it going to be? This could be the turning point. But no, this author doesn't want to give us a release to the tension yet. He wants to ratchet it up higher. Instead of answering the question, what will God do? He wants to draw our attention to the king. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, the king responds the same way. All the outward signs of inward change. He leads the nation in repentance. Look at what he does. He calls for four things. Number one, a national fast, a complete fast. No food, no water, no people, no animal. Nobody gets to eat or drink anything. Second, everybody dresses in sackcloth. That would have been unpleasant. It doesn't look nice. It doesn't feel nice. The point was, it's a garment symbolizing we're in mourning. Third, Fervent prayer. And fourth, major moral change in society. Turn from your evil way and from violence. If there's anything Nineveh was known for, it was that. 
and they know it and they repent. That'd be the one word summary that I would put on the king's reaction. Repentance. Now, when you hear the word repentance, you might think regret or remorse, a feeling of sorrow. It's actually not a feeling at all. The word means change. To repent is to do a 180. You turn the opposite direction. The only way to handle sin is not wait a while. It's not excuse it or rationalize it. It's not blame someone else. The only way to handle sin and the displeasure of the deity is to repent. And notice the king's humility. There's no presumption of forgiveness from God. Verse 9, who knows, he says. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger and we may not perish. Friends, this is where true repentance shows itself. It gives up all claim on God. There's a version of repentance that is just another version of self-righteousness. It's showing God how sincere you are and doing penance to earn his favor again so that he can so that you can prove to him I'm good enough for you. Real repentance just goes, I have no claim on you. All I deserve from you is wrath and judgment and I don't I, I can't do anything about how you're going to handle the next 5 minutes of my life, but I just want you to know I see that. I realize that. I'm broken over that. That scares me, and I've got nothing else I can do other than say I am so sorry. That's real repentance. And I just want to say if there's one thing that our culture could learn from Nineveh, it's this attitude that God does not owe us his forgiveness at all. We know it about one another, right? It could not be more clear that forgiveness is in short supply in our culture. You can get canceled. There are no tolerance policies at work. You know, you're an employee here. Our reputation is bound up with yours. You do that thing, over, gone. And sometimes that justified certain lines of work and in certain places. I understand that. I'm not calling that out. We certainly don't learn forgiveness from nature, do we? Nature is red in tooth and claw. There's blood and violence everywhere in the natural world. If you have a friend that like worships nature or views the creation as god, if they're wiccan or or just the older word was pagan, ask them why they're nice. Because they didn't learn that from how wasps treat frogs or frogs treat wasps, right? I mean, Nature's violent. You're not going to learn forgiveness and kindness out there. I was talking with a Muslim years and years ago when we still lived in the Detroit area. A very good friend of mine. And he was encouraging me to read the Quran and I was encouraging him to read the Bible and so that was our agreement. So I read his book and he read mine. And over and over again in those surahs, I was reading um, you know, this, this praise to Allah, the most gracious and the most merciful. And he was also described as a God who is just, who punishes the guilty. And I had zero problem with it as I was reading along. Why? Because my Christian worldview was pressing itself in on this book that doesn't make an opportunity for that. And it suddenly dawned on me and I asked my friend, hey, if you believe in a God who is just and punishes the guilty, how can he be merciful? Do you just have to catch him on a good day? And he had... No answer. At least no real answer. 
You have to earn it. But then I said, that's not mercy. He's just giving you what you've earned. And suddenly the problem of forgiveness crashed in on me. Why, if there is a perfectly holy God who has standards far higher than mine and I don't even live up to my own, why would He have mercy on me? He's either not just or He's not... He's either not just and He's just going to be good to me or He's totally just and I have no hope of mercy and forgiveness. And we're left right where that king of Nineveh was. Who knows? Who knows? But somehow, look at verse 10. This holy God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way and relented of the disaster He had said He would do to them and He did not do it. Why? Two reasons why. It is so thoroughly in his character to forgive. And he has ground for it now in his son. Right? His character gave rise to his own son coming to this earth to live here for us and satisfy justice by living a perfect life and then satisfy mercy by taking all of our imperfections, all the people that he loved, all the repentant Ninevites, taking all of that sin on himself and being crushed by justice so that mercy could flow. That's how we get forgiven. Is that clear to you? We don't just get a mulligan. The God of the universe doesn't just go, oh, I'm like Santa Claus and I want to give you a do-over because I'm so kind to everyone. He is kind to everyone, but how if he's just? Because of Jesus, his son, who upholds justice and unleashes mercy. That's what we get in Jesus. Thank you. That's how I feel too. Amen. So, as I said earlier, this is a simple but amazing story with a simple but amazing truth. And here it is. Repentance is all that's required to avert God's wrath and release His mercy. Repentance is all that's required to avert God's wrath and release His mercy. Look at how the story highlights this. These Ninevites simply turn They don't convert. There's no indication that ancient Nineveh converted to follow Yahweh. They made no profession of faith in Jonah's God. They don't ask him to teach them to walk faithfully in the Torah. Now, in the historical record, we have a lot of accounts of the city of Nineveh becoming aware that they had displeased the gods and having some national crisis and turning over a new leaf. We have lots of record of that in the historical uh, account. Now, usually it was prompted by a famine or a total eclipse of the sun or some cosmological thing. But did these guys convert to Judaism? No. They, they just turn from their evil. They express their remorse. They cry out to God for mercy and, and, and God has it on them. You know, sometimes we get totally the wrong idea about God that if we get on His bad side and mess up a little, it's over. No. That if we repent a little, That's the hair trigger. His mercy is unleashed with so little from us and His wrath takes so much prolonged provocation. It's like a rusty bear trap in the woods that's been there for generations. And a stick falls on it and doesn't snap. And a deer walks past it and even steps in it and it's so rusted shut it doesn't snap. And your kid steps on it and it doesn't snap. And someone jumps out of a tree on it and then it might snap. Because it is a bear trap. But it takes a lot to get it to go. 
And look at the enormous size of everything in this chapter. The, import, the size of the city, this three-day thing, and its importance to God, and the breadth of their repentance. I mean, the author's going to extremes to emphasize no animals, no food or drink. I mean, this is extreme. Why? All of that outsized, gargantuan like extremism is meant to highlight the gigantic proportions of God's mercy. That's the point. And so there's one application. Repent. Repent. He will have you. Jesus' very first sermon when he came was repent for the kingdom is at hand. When he sent out the 12 on their preaching tour, they went out and proclaimed everywhere that people should repent. Mark 6, 12. Jesus said the purpose of his coming, Luke 5, 32, was not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In the apostolic preaching in Luke and in the book of Acts, there are a lot of times that the whole apostolic message is summed up as repentance. In the book of Revelation, seven churches receive personal messages from Jesus. Five of them are called to repent. Ultimately, in the book of Revelation, God brings his full wrath and judgment on the world because people will not repent. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Every moment, every day, friends, for everything. Repentance should be our response to everything. A bad thing? Luke, 11, uh, Luke 13, people came to Jesus and said, hey, did you hear about those people that Pilate killed when they were offering their sacrifices? And he said, do you think, you're a worse sinner? Do you think they were worse sinners than you? No, except you repent, you will all perish. Bad things that happen in the world should provoke us to repent. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Good things should motivate us to repent. God, I don't deserve this. Your favor and mercy are so amazing. Everything we do and experience should be a constant ongoing provocation, a, a motivation to repent. Sometimes preachers make a big deal out of Jonah getting out of the belly of a whale and showing up in Nineveh with that on his body. Bleached skin, seaweed in his hair, none of that is the point. It's interesting to think about, right? Did Jonah's story get to Nineveh before he did? Did they hear about this God who uses a fish to save a rebel prophet? Did they recognize God's mercy and hope that there would be some left for them? Were they just scared to death of this man bleached? The preachers make a big deal out of that. And friends, if the narrator wanted to tell us about that, he would have. And the fact that he didn't means that's not the point. The point is not why they repented. The point is that they repented and God Relented. That's all he needed. This is not a story about the sensational things that you have to do to convince really bad people to repent. It's a story about the sensational thing God does when really bad people repent. That's the point. I, I like the sound of that, so I have to say that again. Nobody seemed to like the sound of that. It's not a story about the sensational things that you have to do to get really bad people to repent. It's a story about the sensational thing God does when really bad people repent. Amen. Yes, I feel so comforted by that word. Because, not the amen part, but the, the, that God responds this way when really bad people repent. He relents right there on the spot. Fire and brimstone all brewed up. They're ready to pour out in 40 days. The cauldron of judgment is filled to overflowing. 
The countdown has begun and the whole thing was called off because of one sentence. The people believed God's word. So the only thing left to ask is, do we? Father, I pray. That you would help us to hear whatever word it is of yours and take it seriously because we take you seriously and change. Because of Jesus, through his power and strength, for his glory.